Good morning again. The scripture reading for this morning is Matthew 21, verses 28 to 46. If you could turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a number of Bibles on the back table there. You are welcome to grab one of those and use it. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome not only to use it today, but write your name in the front and take it home. It's yours and bring it back week after week as we study God's word together. Before we read God's word, let's pray together one more time. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now to hear from you. Uh, We come because as uh, Jesus said in John 15, it's your word that cleanses us, that prunes us, that makes us fruitful. We pray, Father, that you would use your word by your spirit in our hearts this morning to prune us and to make us fruitful for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the older son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, tenant farming is a situation in which a landowner provides the land and then the tenant farmer lives on the land and works the land and gives a portion of the produce to the landowner as payment 
for use of the land. Now, tenant farming is often abused, or has been in history. Uh, the landowner can easily take advantage of the farmer and treat him as little more than a slave. But in our text this morning, Jesus tells a parable where actually the farmers seek to take advantage of the landowner. Now, the reason tenant farming is really a pretty good illustration is because it so p- closely parallels where we live every day. We'll get to the details of that in a moment, uh, but the, the summary goes a little something like this, right? God is the owner of the world. The world belongs to him. He is the landlord. He made the world. He made everything in the world. He made us. We are tenants on God's land. We are workers in God's vineyard. Which means everything that we have, everything that we do, everything that we accomplish, we owe to Him. We're going to work through the text this morning. You can see the outline on the back of your bulletin. There are four points. We're going to talk about the tenants. We're going to talk about the landowner. We're going to talk about the fruit. And we're going to talk about the rock. We'll talk about the tenants and finding yourself in this story. We'll talk about the landowner, the fact that God has a claim on us and on our lives. We'll talk about the fruit that God calls us to respond to Him in repentance and in righteousness. And then we'll talk about the rock and ask the question, will you acknowledge the sun, the air, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ? So first we'll talk about the tenants. Uh, There are really two parables in this section that we read. The, The first parable is about a vineyard owner with two sons, And the second parable is also about a vineyard owner, but this time who has tenants working his land. But in both of those parables, Jesus is very intentionally writing his hearers into the story. In the first parable, Jesus describes these two sons. He says the the first son says that he will obey. The father says, go into my vineyard and work. The first uh, first son says he will not obey, but then later on he does. Jesus explains this a few verses later and says that the tax collectors and the prostitutes, uh, those people who in that day were sort of the poster children for wickedness, right? They, they, uh, Jesus says that they started out rebelling. They start out doing the wrong thing, saying, no, I will not go and work for you, God. I'm not going to follow your ways. But eventually, they change their mind. They repent, we'll see, and they enter the vineyard. See, the tax collectors and prostitutes in Jesus' day who had heard the preaching of John the Baptist changed their ways, turned from their old life, and began living a new one. On the other hand, there's the second son. He says he will obey, but never does. This, Jesus says, is like the religious leaders, the religious establishment of his day, the people to whom Jesus is talking They are the people who like to look religious and like to sound religious, who who like to seem like good, moral, upstanding people. But in the end, they're really doing their own thing. Their religion is all a show. In the second parable, Jesus has the tenants. Again, these tenants represent the, the religious leaders of Israel or even all of the nation of Israel. And the tenants refuse to pay the landlord a portion of the produce. And eventually we're told that the landlord is going to punish those tenants and give the care of the vineyard over to others. 
And so again, you'll notice there are two groups of people. In the first one, there's the, the, the first son and the second son. In the second parable, there are the tenants and then the, the other tenants. Verse 45, uh, the, after Jesus tells these parables, we read this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And the, the point I, I want to make here is that, that you also are somewhere in this story. Now, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily one of the two sons. There are actually two other options, Right? So there's the son who says, I won't go and does. There's the son who says, I will go and doesn't. There are two more options. You could say, I won't go and never go. And you could say, I will go and go right away. So there are really four options. But, but each of us is somewhere in this story because God is calling all of us to be workers in his vineyard. We're going to talk about what that looks like in a minute. But, but the question to ask ourselves throughout as we go is, how am I responding to God's call? That's all we're going to say for now about the tenants. Let's look at the landlord. And again, here's the singular point I want to make about the landlord. And that is this, that God has a claim on your life. That God owns you. That God has a right to your life, to your mind, to your heart, to your strength, to your will and affections, to your choices and behavior. That your money and your time and your education and your career, your family life, your public life, your private life all belong to God. Think about the first parable. The first parable, the man has two sons. Uh, Parents, of course, have authority over their children. And if the father, especially in that culture, if the father said, go work in my vineyard, the son was expected to go and work in his father's vineyard. Parents have a certain level of authority over their children. They have jurisdiction, which means they have the right to speak into their children's lives. They have the right to tell their child, go clean your room, be nice to your brother, right? Be home by curfew, go to bed, go to bed. (laughs) Parents have this basic authority that's grounded in creation. Their authority is not just because they're bigger and smarter and stronger than their children. Those things aren't always true, not all of them. Their authority is not because the government says they have authority over their children. But parental authority is God-given. Most of us accept that, at least until we hit about 14 or 15. And then it comes back to us when we hit about 25. There's that decade in the middle that it just doesn't stick. In the second parable, you have the master of the house who owns the vineyard. He plants the vineyard, which wouldn't have been cheap. He puts a fence around the vineyard to protect it from wild animals. He digs a wine press to turn the grapes in the wine. He builds a tower to oversee everything and to protect it from invaders, whether animal or human. And then he leases the land to tenants to work and care for the garden. The master has done everything that he can do for this vineyard. It's his land, it's his farm, it's his grapes. He has a right to the produce. Now, Jesus here is echoing the language of Isaiah. We we read that passage earlier in Isaiah chapter 5, where Isaiah refers to Israel as God's vineyard. And there, God is the one who plants the vineyard, who cares for it as the vine dresser, and then who comes and looks for its fruit. And yet, we could even step back further from Israel, because Israel, in this sense, is just a, a microcosm of the universe, 
Right? In the beginning, God planted a garden, a literal garden, and he placed humanity in it to care for his garden. See, we have been placed here to bear fruit for God, sometimes literal, but always metaphorical. We'll talk about that in a moment. And the, the point that we come away with is that because God made the world, indeed because God made us, he has a right to the produce, to the fruit of our lives. God has a right to the fruit of our lives. This world is his world. We are his people. He has a right to the fruit of our lives. Now really, I think this is probably the most offensive thing in Scripture. Every other offensive thing in Scripture probably flows from this one. This notion of God's ownership, His claim on my life. It comes into conflict, right, with our notions of, of, individual, of individualism, right, and even our individual rights on some level. If God owns us, we don't have any rights before Him. We may have rights before one another, we have, may have rights before the government, but we don't have rights before God. He owns us, we're His. The, the different ways that this vine language is used in Scripture actually brings this out. Uh, sometimes Israel is the vineyard and God's people are tending the vine. They are tenants, like in Jesus' version of the story. But in other places, Israel is the vineyard, meaning that God's people themselves are the vine, that God himself is tending. God owns us. We are his vineyard. We are his vine. We are his garden. We are his planting. Which, of course, only pushes further the point that he can do with us as he pleases. He can expect of us what he pleases. He can make demands of you, even if they don't necessarily make sense to you at first. Even if, they, even if they're not what you really want, he has that right, right? He has that right like a parent over a child, like a landowner over workers, like a, garden, a gardener over his vine. God has a right to do with the vine what he will. He has a right to do with his land what he will. He has a right to do with his child and his children what he will. Now, it's true, and this point needs to be made, right, that his right is not exactly like ours. Because at the end of the day, me and my kids, we are all people. At the end of the day, right, the, the business owner and the employees are all people. Even us and the land that we own or that we might work are all part of God's creation. But God is the creator and originator of all things. His authority is analogous to, but far exceeds all human authority. And so whether you want to think of yourself as God's children or as God's vine or as tenants in God's vineyard, it doesn't really matter. It all amounts to the same thing in the end. You owe your produce, you owe your fruit, you owe your life to him. So point one was just that, that we are somewhere in this story, right? God is calling us all to be workers in his vineyard. Point two is that God has a claim on your life. He is our creator. He has put you in his good land, in his good garden, in his good vineyard to bear fruit for him. Which brings us, of course, to the question, what does that mean, right? What is the fruit that God is calling us to bear? What is the fruit that God wants of his people, that God expects of us? There are actually lots of things that we could mention uh, about fruit in the scriptures, about fruitfulness in the scriptures. 
Sometimes the, the theme of fruit is actually bound up with the theme of sacrifice, the language of sacrifice, right? In the Old Testament, one of the sacrifices that the Israelites were to offer was the, the sacrifice of the first fruits, right? They were to offer the first fruits of their ground to God. Today, we don't offer a bloody sacrifice anymore. Jesus has died for our sins, so we don't offer bloody sacrifices. They pointed forward to him. But the Bible does say we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. So our lives are to be offered to God. The fruit of our lives are offered up to him. The writer of Hebrews talks about it this way. He talks about the sacrifice of praise to God, which is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. He goes on to say, do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so in general, we could say that the the fruit that God is looking for from us is is the offering of our lives to him. Now, in one sense, the metaphor breaks down because the fruit is not something that we kind of store up to give him at the end, like those who are tending the vineyards, right? But the fruit is a, a whole life offered up to him all along offering ourselves every day afresh to God. And yet we can be more specific than this. The fruit that God is looking for in in your life and in my life today, right now, falls under two categories. They're, They're interrelated, they're overlapping, but they're distinct. They're two categories. God desires the fruit of repentance, and God desires the fruit of righteousness. You see these in the text. In the first parable, the first son says he will not go and work for the father, but afterwards he changes his mind and he goes. Now the word for for changes his mind is the New Testament word for repentance. The first son says he's not going to obey God, but he repents and he obeys God in the end. Jesus interprets this parable by saying this in verses 31 and, and 32. He says, truly I say to you, to the religious leaders that he was talking with, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe them, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. See, many of us have lived at some point in our lives in blatant disobedience to God, in outright, obvious, all-out disobedience. We try to run life our own way, for our own purposes, in our own strength. And God wants us to change our minds, right? To acknowledge that we have been in the wrong. To acknowledge His claim on us as our God. And to begin to live in light of that truth. See, to repent is to realize and acknowledge that I have been taking my life in one direction, pursuing my own path, when God wants me to go in the opposite direction, in obedience to Him. And yet, maybe your life looks pretty good. And like Jesus' hearers, the the, the Pharisees and the scribes, maybe like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, you are highly respected for your moral behavior. Or, or for your theological knowledge, or, or for your evangelistic attainments, for your work in the church, whatever it is. Well, notice what Jesus says about the religious people of his day. He says the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before them. What is Jesus saying to them? He's saying all of your religious activity is not enough. Claiming to be religious, claiming to be a Christian is, is, not, is not what gets one into the kingdom, as Jesus puts it. 
These claims may be mere hypocrisy. So you'll notice that the men in the second parable, again, who stand for the religious leaders, they're committed to throwing off the yoke of the master. The master leases out the vineyard, he goes away, and when the time comes, he he sends servants to the tenants to collect their fruit. And the tenants took the servants, they beat one, they they killed another, and they stoned another. They, They have no intention of acknowledging the right of the landlord to the produce. So he sends yet more servants, and they do the same thing. They refuse to acknowledge the master's claim on their life. See, religion should bear fruit in life. The first fruit, of course, is seeing the ways that I've lived in rebellion against my Creator. However moral and religious I may look outwardly, my heart is in rebellion, and I need to acknowledge that before God. I need to see that I have rejected his rule for self-rule. I need to see that I daily pretend to be my own boss. I daily pretend that I belong to no one. I need to see that rebellion. I need to acknowledge that rebellion. And I need to turn from that rebellion. Of course, there's not only the fruit of, of a repentant faith, of repentance, but there's also the fruit of righteousness. And the two go hand in hand. You'll note that Jesus mentioned righteousness when he talked about John the Baptist in verse 32. He said, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. See, John the Baptist brought a message of of righteousness to God's people. The tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him and changed their mind about who was in charge and changed their lives to line up with that. We see this in the Isaiah passage as well. Isaiah describes the care of the one who built the vineyard. And then he says, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And he goes on to say, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And then God pronounces judgment on Israel. And and, and Isaiah concludes by saying this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God wants righteousness from his people. What does that mean? Well, first you can notice what it means in Isaiah. In contrast, justice, by way of contrast, justice and righteousness are contrasted with bloodshed and an outcry meaning the outcry of the oppressed. So righteousness there, at the very least, means the opposite of oppression. Rather than oppressing and using and taking advantage of those around you, righteousness means loving and serving those around you for their advantage, for their good. But, But I think there's this temptation to define righteousness often merely in terms of how we relate to other people. But Jesus really has already defined righteousness for us in the Gospel of Matthew, way back in Matthew 5-7 through in the Sermon on the Mount. See, there righteousness is, is not merely outward, but inward, because God sees our hearts. Righteousness is not living before man in public, but it's living before God, even when no one else sees, because God takes notice. Jesus says that righteousness is loving your enemies. Because that's the kind of father that we have in God. So Jesus defines righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount in terms of how we live in relationship 
to our God? Do you live for God, not just outwardly, but even in your thought life? Do you strive to serve Him? Do you strive to imitate Him in His love, in His fatherly compassion, in His readiness to forgive? You know, in the beginning, God created man in His image, and, we're, and he, God told humanity to be fruitful and multiply because God wanted His image to fill the earth. That's what righteousness is, right? When we live as the reflection of God in the world. When we represent Him. When we reflect Him. This happens in different ways, of course, right? It happens in our love, in our compassion, in our service to those around us. When we serve, even as He served us. But of course, each of us has different strengths, different abilities, different uh, callings in life even. And so each of us is going to express that service in different ways. An, an artist expresses God's dim, di, image differently from a lawyer, who expresses it differently from a stay-at-home mom, who is going to express it differently from an athlete, right? All of us are going to reflect something of God as we live out our God-given callings in imitation of our Father in heaven. We can only do that, of course, though, as we first acknowledge our place in the world before Him, as creatures made to be like our Creator, as tenant farmers in someone else's vineyard. We are made to represent the landowner to the world, each in our peculiar place in life, but we're called to represent the landowner, not be the landowner ourselves. We are tenants. God is the landowner. We bear fruit as we remember that and live in light of that. So we have the tenants. Right? We've, you and I are in this story somewhere called to be workers in God's vineyard. We have the landlord, the fact that God has a claim on our lives. We have the, the fruit, which we could say more about, but, but adds very, uh, its very uh, foundation that fruit consists of repentance and striving to live out a righteous life in imitation of our Father. And now we have the rock. Now, as we said a moment ago, the tenants in the second parable are determined not to acknowledge the master's claim on the land. They mistreat the servants. Just as Israel had repeatedly mistreated God's prophets throughout history, the prophets that God sent to call them back to faithfulness and fruitfulness, Israel mistreated them, so the tenants in this story mistreat the servants. And in the parable, the landowner finally decides, all right, I'm going to send my son. They will respect my son. Now, one commentator said, uh, in real life, of course, this is unlikely. The owner would have had the law on his side, and he would have taken strong action to eject his defaulting tenants. But Jesus is telling a story that would illustrate the way a compassionate and loving God acts towards sinners, not the way a businessman would act to protect his investment. So the landowner sends his son. Look at verses 38 and 39. But when the tenants saw the son, they said, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The landowner sends his son and they put him to death. Jesus calls upon the audience to draw their own conclusion. In verses 40 and 41, he says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death 
and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Now what's odd is actually where Jesus goes next. In verse 22, Jesus, you know, we have this one metaphor going of the vineyard and of the tenants, and suddenly Jesus throws in another metaphor. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus is there quoting Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is about a man who's surrounded by his enemies, who's surrounded by the nations, who's on the verge of destruction, but God delivers him. And not only does he deliver this man, but he exalts him. Hence the phrase, the stone that the builders rejected, right? The one who was surrounded by his enemies and on the verge of death has become the cornerstone, the the main foundation stone, right? That sets the square for the rest of the building. The one that the builders rejected has become the key, Jesus is saying that the Son has come, right? The Son has come to the Father's father's vineyard. Jesus has come to His people. And that though the tenants, the religious leaders, the nation of Israel, though they refuse to acknowledge Jesus' rightful claim, though they put Him to death outside of Jerusalem, the holy city, just as uh, the Son is, in the story, is killed outside of the vineyard, the stone whom the builders reject, the Son whom the tenants reject, will be exalted. And what is Jesus saying there? Well, Jesus is hinting, which is maybe too light of a word. He's strongly hinting, right, at the resurrection. He's saying that though Jesus is going to be killed, he will nevertheless become the cornerstone of God's new temple. You know, sometimes you you might ask, well, why should I acknowledge the the authority of this Jesus? I mean, many of his own people didn't acknowledge him. His own fellow Israelites didn't acknowledge him as the Messiah. Why should I acknowledge him as the Messiah? And the answer is really found right here in the resurrection. That he is the stone that the builders rejected who has become the cornerstone. You know, at Jesus' resurrection, it's really the climax of his ministry. And following the resurrection, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, in Jesus, in his resurrection, Jesus is exalted as king. And Paul says at one point that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection declares him to be the Son. And then following his resurrection, Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand, a place of authority, a place of kingship, and he sits down on the throne in heaven. Jesus is the heir of all things. We owe him our allegiance, our lives, our fruitfulness. Yet Jesus goes on in verse 43, and he says this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Who are the people producing its fruits? Who are the other tenants mentioned earlier who will give the master his fruits in their season? Now some people say here that Jesus is talking about the Gentiles, that Jesus is making kind of a a Jew-Gentile contrast. And the Gospel of Matthew does make a lot out of the fact that Gentiles are receiving Jesus again and again, whereas the majority, at least, of the Jewish people were rejecting him. And yet that early church was largely Jewish. And I think it's probably better not to see a Jew-Gentile contrast here, but a religious and unreligious contrast. I mean, think about the context. It's the tax collectors and the prostitutes that are entering into the kingdom. 
It's the religious leaders who are not bearing fruit for the kingdom. But the unreligious people, or those who are at least up to that point had been unreligious, right? They are repenting at the preaching of John the Baptist. They are the ones bearing fruit for the kingdom. And that makes sense, of course, because Jesus has been saying throughout the Gospel of Matthew that the kingdom is for the poor, the poor in spirit. The kingdom is for children, for those who recognize that they have nothing to boast in before God. It is for people like this, for the tax collectors and for the sinners, for the rebellious sons of every stripe that Jesus came. It is for us that he died outside the vineyard, outside Jerusalem. See, Jesus' death was not just the tragic consequence of unruly tenants, but the payment for our rebellion, the satisfaction of God's justice for our unrighteousness. And so we repent and we believe the good news that God accepts us, not based on our record, but based on His grace found in the cross. You might ask, what is the difference then between these outwardly religious tax collect or the, the, the outwardly rebellious tax collectors and sinners and the inwardly rebellious religious leaders. Well look at verse forty four. Verse forty four says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone it will crush him. That's kind of an odd saying maybe, but it seems to be saying this that our response to the stone, the stone that was rejected and exalted, is the decisive factor. Right? Our response to Jesus is the decisive factor as to whether we will be with the wicked tenants who are put to death or with the other tenants who will bear fruit. And Peter and Paul, both in the New Testament, pick up on this language. And Paul quotes Isaiah where God says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, there are two possible responses to Jesus and his authority. The one is you can stumble over it, you can be offended by it, you can reject Jesus' authority. And then you are counted among the wicked tenants who refuse to acknowledge the rightful authority of the landowner and his heir. Or you can believe in him and not be put to shame. No matter how much unrighteousness you have in your past, no matter whether you are one of the tax collectors and sinners, no matter how much you fail, even today, in striving to serve God, the one who believes in the cornerstone will not be put to shame, the Bible says. Now maybe you think that God has no claim on you. You think that you can kind of steal the vineyard for yourself, that your life is your own to do with as you please. Jesus gives you this warning, right, that your, your life is not your own. And if you treat it as such, when the day of reckoning comes, you will be found wanting. And again, the fruit is not so so much something that that we store up, right, to give to God at the end. Like, I'll just wait a little bit, and then at the end, I'll acknowledge Him. No, but it's whether our whole life is offered up to Him all along. Maybe your heart is divided. Maybe you think you, you can both... Kind of give God some of the fruit and keep some for yourself and kind of play this game. Jesus says elsewhere, you cannot serve two masters, right? You cannot both take the fruit of life for yourself and offer your life up to God at the same time. Which is just another way of saying you can't live righteously and unrighteously at the same time. You can't pretend you are the landowner and acknowledge God as the owner of all things. 
Well, maybe you are religious. Maybe you've lived your whole life in the church. You've grown up in the church. You've always called yourself a Christian. Remember, claiming to be religious, claiming to be Christian, whatever it is, right? That's not what saves us. That's not how we enter into the kingdom. As we said, true religion should bear fruit in your life. And so if you're merely claiming the name of Christian, and yet there's no fruit, no evidence, Jesus says, no, there's got to be something more. Maybe you're on the other side, right? Maybe, maybe you're actually self-righteous, right? You think that you bear fruit just fine. That's why Jesus loves you, right? That's why he's going to save you, because you bear all this fruit. Look at how good you are. Well, don't forget that we enter the kingdom by repentance and faith, as, tax, as the tax collectors and prostitutes before us. We must enter as the poor in spirit, as children without status, without right, without claim, without boast. Yet maybe you're struggling, Maybe you want to bear fruit in your life for Jesus. Maybe you you want to see your sin. You want to repent of it. You want to live righteously to reflect God's image in the world. And you're struggling. You're saying, every day I, I try to fight and yet I keep falling back to these same things again and again and again. Well, Jesus is the rock. Remember, when we believe in Him, we will not be put to shame. But He's not only the rock. Jesus also says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. See, that's how fruit is born. It's not by buckling down and saying, I'm going to work harder and I'm going to make this happen and I'm going to do the right thing. It's not by simply sort of gritting your teeth and coercing your will to obey God. It is hard work, don't get me wrong, but we work hard to see Jesus. We work hard to depend upon Him and upon His Spirit rather than ourselves. We work hard to abide in Him, to rest in Him, to trust in Him, rather than to veer off into self-reliance and pride. Well, maybe, maybe you are a good tenant. Maybe you're devoted to bearing fruit for Jesus. Maybe you are bearing fruit for Jesus in your life. To you, I can just say, persevere. Right? Persevere in serving Him. He delights in your fruit, in your striving after Him. And one day he will return. The heir will come back to the vineyard. And you will hear the epithet, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the world that you've made. We thank you for creation. We thank you for life and health and breath. We thank you for the sun, moon, and the stars. We thank you for the planet that we're standing on. We thank you, Father, for everything that you've given us, every detail of everything that you've made. We thank you that you've placed us in your world to bear fruit for your glory, to, to, to live in the world in such a way that brings honor to you, to offer our lives back to you, as an offering of thanksgiving and a praise. Father, help us to do that. Help us to see into our hearts where we have this stubborn rebellion, rebellious, rebelliousness left. Help us to see, Father, where we are refusing to honor you, refusing to let you in, refusing to acknowledge your claim. Help us to see what we're still holding on to. And help us to repent. Help us to acknowledge you as the the, the landlord of the world. Help us to offer ourselves to you. Every ounce of ourselves. That you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.